Welcome to FRT, the IIF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IIF. I'm here with Iota Nasser of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Yoda is an economist focused on digital finance at the OECD. Welcome, Yoda. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm a big fan of the FRT podcast, so I'm very glad to be here today. We are so glad to have you. Let's start a bit by talking about your role at the OECD and what is the role of your particular office. Sure. So I'm working for the Financial Markets Division of the OECD, and in particular for the Committee on Financial Markets. And I currently manage the committee's fintech pillar, And this has two main elements. The first one is coordination of a dedicated group of the committee looking into digitalization topics in finance. This group is called the Experts Group on Finance and Digitalization of the Committee on Financial Markets. And it comprises representatives of our 38 member countries with a particular expertise in fintech coming from central banks, ministry of finance, treasuries, other financial and regulatory authorities. And the second area of my responsibility has to do with leading the analysis around all things fintech. Uh, And so the reports that we'll be touching upon today are products of the committee's experts group, and they come as a result of lengthy deliberation with our delegates in our bodies. So what, uh, what kind of technology and policy topics has your office been particularly focused on this year and why this year? So the focus this year has been decentralized finance. We came out with an analytical report on why DeFi matters and the policy implications that was discussed throughout 2021 by the OECD bodies. And then we followed up with analysis on the institutionalization of crypto assets and the potential for growing interconnectedness between DeFi and TradFi, which resulted in another report that came out earlier this year around May. But the OECD work on fintech is much broader than crypto or DeFi. And we've also embarked in a project around fintech for sustainable finance with a focus on green fintech. And this has also two sides, a negative side around the environmental implications of digital assets. And we intend to have an analytical report launched at the Asian Fintech Symposium of the OECD in November, supported by the government of Japan. And then we have the positive side of how fintech innovations can actually support the climate transition and the uptake of more sustainable finance products. And we intend to start looking into, for example, the use of artificial intelligence for sustainable financing, and in particular for ESG investing in collaboration with the private sector, actually. And we're in discussion with an asset management group using this kind of techniques to support this kind of work. So in essence, the point would be to understand whether and how machine learning models, big data, and all the artificial intelligence innovation can help tackle greenwashing and promote transparency when it comes to ESG investing, but also what kind of challenges would the deployment of such techniques give rise to, both in terms of practical application, but also, most importantly, in terms of policy frameworks. That is certainly a lot to be tackling uh, this year, and I'm sure, I'm sure we'll continue into the coming year. Uh, let's start with the DeFi front then. Um, let's start with the reports, um, one which came out in January and the other in May, I believe. Well, let's start with the first one. So why, you know, why does DeFi matter? So it's perhaps easier to talk about this today and to respond to this question today because DeFi makes headlines every day now for, for some months. But putting this OECD analysis into context, it's the result of discussions we were having at the OECD in early 2021 when DeFi was, to most people in the room, not relevant, 
either due to its small size or to the difficulty in, in understanding what DeFi really is. So the reasons why we thought this is something important for financial market participants and policymakers has to do with four main points. And the first one is, of course, the speed of growth of the DeFi market. And of course, in the context also of the broader growth in the market for crypto assets, we had over 110 billion USD of crypto locked in, in DeFi protocols in Q3 2021. And we witnessed a 50-fold increase within only a year, only in Ethereum-based uh, protocols, by the way. And this in itself is noteworthy. But what makes it even more important for us is that these fast-growing markets are not operating within the traditional regulatory frameworks that safeguard market integrity, consumer protection, financial stability, so plenty of red flags there. And then the second reason is that this kind of activity is very highly linked to the mainstream crypto, that is Bitcoin and Ethereum. There is recycling of profits, there are feedback loops between the two markets, which means that DeFi is also very highly volatile. And then the cherry on top is the use of leverage in this space. And leverage, as we perceive it, has been the most powerful driver for DeFi development in the past months, and in, it really intensifies the fragility of this market. Now, the other very important development was the increased institutional investor interest and also adoption or, and investment in crypto assets. And this means that there is potential for growing interconnectedness between the decentralized finance market and the traditional financial markets that we know. And so we deep dived into this at the second report that we published later uh, in the year. And the last reason, and perhaps the least explored reason of why DeFi matters, is that this kind of development has a lot of possible benefits for the markets and their participants, both in terms of speed of execution, reduced transaction costs, disintermediation, all that possible benefits that can allow for more efficient transactions, atomic settlement, and all that comes with it in terms of possible benefits, but also in concept, a more equitable participation of the users, uh, depending, of course, on the design of the governance structure of this kind of, of markets. And we did indeed see huge waves of innovation uh, in the DeFi space and all that happening in an open source uh, manner, uh, which means that there is potential to promote innovation and financial inclusion, depending on the design. Of course, this is a theoretical benefits that we have not seen uh, as of yet for reasons that we can, we can discuss a bit later. So taking a closer look at your second report that was focused a lot more on the institutionalization of, of crypto assets and, and the DeFi trade fi interconnectedness, tell me a little bit more about that and, and what's important about that institutionalization. One very interesting uh, evolution that we've seen in terms of DeFi protocols tailored for institutional investors is this kind of new uh, suits of DeFi protocols that are based on permissioned networks instead of permissionless. And they allow institutional investor participants to access DeFi liquidity protocols that consist of identifiable participants. So basically, you have a pool of investors that participate in the DeFi protocols that have gone through customer due diligence and all the AML uh, CFT can actually be implemented. So it's a more compliant version of DeFi. And unlike the 
pure DeFight that operates in a pseudonymous manner, participants of these pools are whitelisted before joining the platform, so they know who is within this kind of lending protocol. And it's a very interesting one because it maybe shows us the way for the possible symbiotic relationship between traditional financial institutions and DeFi protocols that are compliant to a very large extent and can allow the financial institutions and their users and their clients to actually reap benefits of decentralized systems, be it atomic settlement, be it reduced counterparty risk, while also participating in DeFi systems in a compliant manner. And we've seen examples in the market already of this kind of institutional suites of, um, of this kind of tailored DeFi protocols for institutional investors. And I think they are promising for the future. Aside from that, of course, in the timeline and path of innovation, that it, it does naturally take time for, for benefits to, to come to fruition. So I'm excited to see, see what happens next in the space. Um, you mentioned the connection or the interconnectedness of DeFi and, and TradeFi, which you explored in the second report. Um, can you tell us um, any more about how the OECD um, finds the two to be interconnected or talk about an example and why that one might matter? So there is limited quantitative evidence about the exact levels of institutional investors participating in crypto asset markets. But we have increased qualitative evidence based on surveys by financial institutions that suggest this kind of growth in investment in crypto assets by institutionals. Now, what is interesting is that investors are moving from the educational phase where they just try to understand what crypto is, what DLTs are, to the actual investment phase. Even if we're talking about a small subset of the institutional investor space, and a small subset of the digital assets, with most activity being Bitcoin holdings and to a lesser extent Ether and, and some of the main stable coins. And of course, when we say institutionals, we refer we don't refer to the to the conservative long-term investors, the likes of pension funds and insurance companies, but uh, mostly to dedicated crypto funds, hedge funds, venture capitals, most more risk-tolerant participants family offices to a large extent, and also, of course, high net, worth, high net worth individuals and sovereign wealth funds as well. So why is this important for the policymaking community? It's because there is potential for contagion of stress between DeFi markets towards traditional markets. And the automated liquidations of DeFi lending protocols is a very good example of how this plays out. If you want me to give you a good brief example of this, the DeFi lending protocols have this kind of margin call mechanisms, which means that the crypto collateral that is pledged on such protocols gets automatically liquidated when the price of the collateral drops below a certain defined level. What we know as margin call mechanism in traditional markets. Now, knowing how volatile crypto is, with any volatility spikes in the price of the crypto assets, and given, given how highly and heavily levered these markets are, we can have the inducement of massive automatic liquidations in DeFi protocols. And in this scenario where the investor gets, to, gets exposed to huge losses in DeFi and has to close positions in traditional markets, this would likely propagate the shock from DeFi to TradFi. This is one of the, of the simple examples of where we see spillover effects 
from DeFi to traditional market. Well, certainly seeing a fair amount of volatility in the market right now that if there had been um, further connections and, and a more you know maturity of the interconnectedness of traditional finance and, and DeFi at, at this time, we certainly would see that, you know, a, a bigger spillover um, or, or even a spillover of, of some kind impacting the financial system. And I, and I think what's really important to take out of just the current activities in, in the market and that volatility and, and how, how we're seeing some of it evolve right now is, I think, remembering just the maturity curve of innovation that where there may be speculation and kind of almost you know irrational returns that we saw at various points leading up to now um, i think it was always you know quite clear that when you have that that there needs to be some kind of normalization again and a cleansing of the um, irrational activity or, or speculation back to some kind of normalcy, which I think follows you know fairly naturally on um, the the curve of maturing innovation over time, and at the end of the day, ends up being very very good for you know the market in terms of identifying naturally the market players that survive um, and continue and identifying the activities that end up having long-term staying power and, and value to, to the economy. But for sure, a great use case right now for why regulators are asking the questions that they're asking or starting to ask about DeFi um, and why conservatism to date in terms of connecting DeFi with TradeFi is you know, a worthy cause to take, take thoughtfully and a bit conservatively. So with that, I, I would lead to, you know, in terms of implications, further implications, um, what other policy implications might you highlight, Yoda, in, in terms of, you know, looking at these activities across the DeFi mm -hmm. development? And let me first say that I, I agree with you about natural evolution of, of fintech development. And the silver lining of the recent failures and market downturn is definitely that we may get stronger and compliant players surviving and the, the, the rest of the scams or not proven kind of projects uh, disappear from the market. So there's definitely the silver line. But the question is, at what cost is this going to happen? Because the biggest issue in markets for decentralized finance products is that they do operate outside any of the frameworks that we have to safeguard investors, uh, market integrity, and, and the overall stability of the markets. And indeed, the, the policy-related uh, implications have to do with this very long list of risks that relate to DeFi, and this is why financial authorities, uh, international standards, standard setters, have been increasingly engaging in both analysis and discussions to, to understand the risks, to assess them, and to find ways to approach this new way of, of doing finance, basically. And, and those risks are related even with some of the fundamental things that we have all agreed to introduce in, in the markets. And to begin with, the AML and CFD controls that cannot, by definition, be applied in truly decentralized markets because these are based on public permissionless networks where nobody gives access to anyone. So there is pseudonymity involved and there is no such kind of customer due diligence. And there's a small caveat that we need to also touch upon and has to do with whether or not 
the DeFi protocols that we see are truly decentralized or not. And this, of course, merits its own discussion, but I'll simply highlight that at the current phase of development of the market, the vast majority of DeFi that we uh, observe is not truly decentralized and has pockets of centralization, controlling forces. So many times the use of DeFi is a misnomer in, in the current environment. You know, it's it's uh, funny that you say that. I was just thinking about, uh, as a former central banker myself, and I, I often think about the lender of last resort, particularly in a crisis scenario or in a downturn. And if one looked at this as, um, you know, a, a mini crisis, if you will, for the, the DeFi market right now or for crypto, you know, in some interpretations, I think it's very interesting that there are players in the market that are publicly acting as almost the lender of last resort for other players in the market by extending credit lines during this time um, and the messages that some of those players are putting out that have, have received those credit lines are to reassure their their customers and their um, participants um, and consumers that you know their money is safe or their investments are safe, much like a bank does during a financial crisis um, or, or did during the financial crisis in uh, you know building up or shoring up its capital and the Fed tried to reassure people you know that the banks that the banks were sound and solid and and that their their money was safe to stop a run on the banks. And so I think from the just a curious kind of point is to see that kind of activity happening just by different players inside of a market um, that is doing central banking like activity um, or to the same ends and yet is explicitly targeting a, a decentralized market, uh, which is kind of a, an interesting juxtaposition in, in some ways. Um, that said, I, I don't think that, you know, people who uh, just point to DeFi and and say, well, because I can say that it that in many cases it's not fully centralized or applications of it aren't, that they somehow um, then kind of um, shirk the potential or, or possibilities of DeFi or dismiss the the slice that likely will you know create long term value or at least has the potential to create long term value in in areas of, of the economy going forward. It's just fascinating to see both sides of that and be able to recognize that and then again get back to the question of how do we get to identifying the long term value and staying power while allowing the things around it that don't have that long term power to fail um, safely? I would just point to one thing, though, Jessica, the fact that those CFI players trying to bail out basically the failing ones uh, do not necessarily have the same incentives as a lender of last resort would have on traditional markets. And that makes all the difference. And what is also interesting is that within this discussion, we realize that CFI and DeFi are being confused and everything is being treated as DeFi at the moment. And this is exactly one of the problems with understanding what DeFi is and how to actually materialize the potential benefits. Absolutely. They, they very much do not have the same incentives. And in, in fact, it's, it's an investment play um, in, in a lot of ways from a business standpoint. You're, you're correct. <laughs> With that, and in terms of some of the volatility in, in the market recently sparked by some from algorithmic stablecoins, 
that have turned out to, I would argue, not be all that stable. Um, and, and I think that you know, you're really looking at two different kinds of stable coins, potentially one that is is hopefully more stable, that is closer to being backed by you know fiat or short-term very liquid um, treasuries or other types of, of assets versus you know an algorithmic um, instrument that is backed by highly volatile, potentially um, much riskier just mix of assets that you're hoping to then keep at a more stable value by by balancing them within the same basket, if you will. Two very different items, um, one that, you know, perhaps um, shouldn't have been uh, perhaps let out of the lab with the word stable in front of it, I might argue, and makes it more difficult for regulators perhaps to look at how do we regulate stable coins when we're referring to two different very there are very different types of things, both as the same word. But thinking about that, how would you say that this has kind of subsequently impacted the development of, of DeFi and and how we might think about it, recognizing that not all DeFi uses crypto as the money layer, but stablecoins certainly have played a, a pretty important part in it so far. Definitely. I, I totally agree. Stablecoins are a foundational basis for DeFi. If we didn't have stable coins, we wouldn't have seen such growth in DeFi. People use them to hedge against the, the crypto asset volatility without having to exit the DeFi system, without converting their crypto into fiat, or without having to suffer the, this kind of volatility while waiting to move from one protocol to another. But they have a role that is um, at the same time a very big point of vulnerability for those DeFi protocols. And at the same time, they constitute the connecting tissue that links DeFi and TradFi. And going back to your previous question about the interconnectedness between DeFi and traditional markets, what we claimed in the report was that stablecoins are the main bridge between traditional financial markets and decentralized financial markets. And what's interesting is that in this report, we were we actually published it a couple of weeks before the failure of Terra, and it was discussing a scenario where one of the major stablecoins loses its peg, and we described the risks for disruption to digital asset markets and also the risks of spillovers to traditional markets. So this Terra uh, stablecoin failure is a very good example of a case study of the risks that we described and analyzed. And, and although... I do agree with you that there are indeed differences between the different types of stablecoins, the different design models. I do have to say that Terra was, again, it was not even decentralized. We saw controlling power of the founder on it. But nevertheless, the, the run risk that Terra experienced is something that applies equally across the board of stablecoin arrangements. And in the case of those backed by reserve assets, there are many factors that can, again, undermine the, the investor confidence. For example, there is a lack of transparency around reserved assets, and we hear a lot uh, this week, actually, around Tether again. There's lack of clarity regarding the redemption rights of the holders. We can have operational risks and, and disruptions, and we know that there is a risk that any kind of sudden event that undermines investor confidence can actually lead to similar self-reinforcing cycles of, of redemptions, of fire sales of the underlying assets, and it can turn into a classic uh, band run situation, as we have seen with, with Terra. And this is exactly where the interconnectedness lies, because such fire sales and mass redemptions 
of the stablecoin reserves could actually disrupt critical funding markets. We know that, for example, commercial paper constitutes a very big part of some of the dominant stablecoins, such as Tether, and this could potentially impact financial stability overall, given, for example, the weight of commercial paper in the reserves and the, and the fact that they constitute today one of the largest holders of short-term credit globally. Yeah, certainly. I, you know, I, I keep thinking about just how curious it is, or curious and yet predictable, right? And is that we we go through cycles where we look at, you know, we have innovation in in financial markets and in instruments, um, and then we assess what risk they that innovation poses to the financial system. And in each one of those cycles, the, the innovation is different. But if you consider what is the risk at the end of the day, there's far less difference than, you know, than there is similarity, I think, oftentimes. And, and in here, increasingly seeing, you know, the same concept of, of either a run risk or um, leverage or, you know, mismatch of liquidity, things that are very familiar to central banks and regulators and, you know, not, not questions that they haven't dealt with but just looking very different in, in terms of a different technology that is effectuating it and, and perhaps a different set of market participants behind it. In this case, where you have a much more, more entrepreneurs behind this particular movement and wave of financial innovation, as opposed to some of the kinds of assets and instruments that were created you know, back during the financial crisis that were, were more on the traditional banker innovation side, as opposed to bringing a lot of the you know, more Silicon Valley um, entrepreneurial community in that, that is a little bit less familiar by nature with some of the traditional questions around bank run risk and traditional regulation. Absolutely, absolutely. And if I may add to your point, one of the learnings of this recent Terra failure for me was that trust and confidence in general in the market for decentralized finance is as important as it is in traditional markets. And one would think that this would not be the case given that how heavily reliant decentralized finance markets are on smart contracts, on code, on automation, but actually uh, investor confidence and behavior is, is crucial in these markets as well. And we saw this with uh, the subsequent depegging of, of Tether on the first day of the failure of Terra, right? And the 7 billion of Tether redemptions that day alone. So it's a very important learning of this failure for the, the similarities between traditional markets and this kind of new wave of financial engineering in decentralized finance markets. Certainly a lesson in that the, the fundamentals of, of what you know, keeps an economy afloat and allows for economic growth and just basic stability um, certainly don't seem to change much and probably probably won't. Right? It's the, the fundamentals that are the bedrock. And then there are certainly new ways um, and potential for new ways to, to go about um, executing pieces of that growth or, or pieces of um, you know, various transactions and, and gaining efficiencies. But at the end of the day, again, the numbers are the numbers, the fundamentals are, are the fundamentals. And, you know, the math wins at the end of the day when, when the math starts looking a little irrational. So I, I know that we've focused uh, largely on, on DeFi so far, and this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, let's discuss uh, some of the other initiatives. I know you started off earlier in our conversation with a much broader range of activities that were at play. Uh, what's a, another initiative that you're leading that 
perhaps you'd want to highlight for our listeners? Sure, with pleasure. Uh, something completely not related to crypto asset markets. So the OECD is working currently on a technical support project in the Czech Republic in Europe, a project that is funded by the European Union. And so we are implementing this in close collaboration with DG Reform and the Czech Ministry of Finance. And it comprises a feasibility study around the potential of data for financial services and the possible establishment of a sandbox uh, in the Czech Republic to allow fintech innovation on the basis of data sharing, data usage. And I have to say we're very excited about this project, given that it focuses on data and what we've realized throughout the years of doing analysis on fintech applications in finance is that data is a key component of any and all innovative fintech mechanisms. So whether it's alternative data, big data being used by intermediaries for credit scoring, financial data used by fintechs to build uh, new products and services, machine learning models that are only useful if they have massive amounts of of good uh, data. Everything that we've looked at uh, has a big component of data. So we really look forward to to doing this analysis and to helping promote uh, and accelerate fintech innovation in the Czech Republic and more broadly. Yes, I I feel like the word data you can uh, put on pretty much every topic, for sure the the building block of what we do in finance and uh, even our daily lives is is data focused. It actually almost concerns me how much data is out there about any one given person at a time. And yet the questions of how how can we harness that data or use that data to bring value to the market, but then value to consumers and in their ability to control their own data to some to some degree um, and share it with the entities that the individual wants to share their personal data with while you know making sure that we have ways to to safeguard it and it's you know kept safe and there are certainly challenging questions i know that there are many jurisdictions that either have moved forward uh, various open banking um, regulations, open finance regulations, uh, pushing for even the further question of open data and each uh, kind of jurisdictions in a very different place. If you think about those kind of data dynamics globally, what observations might you have about what we're seeing? There is indeed this shift from open banking to open finance and, and open data more broadly. I can say that open banking has been around for some time now, but it has been implemented at different speed and different levels. So one of the things we intend to do at the OECD expert group on finance and digitalization is to actually take stock of the ways open banking has been uh, implemented by looking at the different frameworks and how these are transitioning or not towards a, a more broad open finance framework. And of course, all these considerations that you've mentioned around privacy, consumer consent, uh, the use of APIs, uh, whether they are standards or not, uh, how this has actually led to more fintech innovation, to what extent it has actually helped accelerate uh, fintech development or not. All these are considerations that we will be looking at uh, in the course of the next few months. And I will be happy to report back, Jessica. <laughs> well, very, very exciting. You know I'll come asking for your findings. Well, thank you very much, Iota, for being with us um, here today and for sharing your views and, and particularly on your recent work on DeFi. And like I said, I, I, I will come ask you about, about that new report when you have finished the study. 
thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of FRT today. And we look forward to having you join us again in upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IIF website as well at IIF.com. 